Uh, my name is Cam. And you're listening to Mysteries, Conspiracies and Random Shit. The show where we expose and unravel some of the most famous stories about unsolved cases, pop culture crimes, conspiracies, controversies and so much more. Each week you'll hear us dive into a new topic and give you all the facts you need to know as well as hearing our take on things. As always, we have an Instagram page where we will post any visuals you may need to go along with in the episode. So if you want to check us out, you can follow us at Mysteries Conspiracies. And then hopefully sometime soon, we're not recording it this week because um, Cam has a massive cut on his eyebrow. We will record our episodes and upload them to YouTube. Or I am currently in the process of putting last week's episode on YouTube in case you want to watch that as well. Um, as didn't always, reckon you guys, sorry, didn't reckon sorry. you guys wanted to see a giant gash on my eyebrow. So, no. Yeah. No, um, I wasn't very well behaved at the weekend at his hockey game. So, yeah, we're not going to record it this week. Um, <laughs> but as always, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. It really, really does mean a lot to us. Um, so let's jump into it. This week, as you can see by the title, we will be discussing Operation Paperclip. Do you want to give a little... Backstory to Operation Paperclip? Yeah, so I'll just give it a brief overview. Yeah. Um, it is basically uh, an operation where the US government uh, recruited a load of Nazi uh, scientists Yes. after the war and took them to the US and hardened them, basically. Yeah. And made them work for the USA. Yeah. Now, this, this is a topic that Cam wanted to do, um, and I've done the research for it. And you know what? It's actually really interesting. While I was doing this research, I didn't actually realise that this had taken place. Ah. Um, shall we get straight into it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, Operation Paperclip, originally named Operation Overcast, was a top-secret US intelligence programme which brought over 1,600 Nazi German scientists, engineers and technicians to America after World War II to harness their brain power for Cold War initiatives. These experiments occurred between 1945 and 1959. The experiments were conducted by the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency and were largely carried out by special agents of the US Army Counterintelligence Corps. Many of these were former members and leaders of the Nazi party. So as World War II was entering its final stages, American and British organisations teamed up to scour occupied Germany for as much military, scientific and technical, techni technological development research as they could uncover. You're Bobo at this pronouncing things, aren't you? Honestly, I am. Like, when I was doing this research, once again, there's certain words that are going to come up, and fucking hell, I swear to God, I just, I'm not going to be able to do it. And I tried to find the pronunciations, <laughs> and I couldn't. So we're just going to wing it, as we do every week, and yep. go from there. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yes, so the British and uh, American organisations wanted to get as much military, scientific, and technological development research as they could uncover from the Germans. Um, trailing behind Allied combat troops, groups such as the Combined Intelligence Objective Subcommittee began confiscating war-related documents and materials 
and interrogating scientists as German research facilities were seized by Allied forces. One enlightening discovery was the Ossenberg List. Is that how you say it? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. Could be Ossenberg or Ozenberg. I'm going to call it Ossenberg. We'll go from there. Probably saying it wrong, but if I'm saying it right, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so in the later part of World War II, Germany was at a logistical disadvantage, having failed to conquer the USSR uh, with Operation Barbarossa, which was from June to December 1941. And it's drive for the... How do I say this? Caucasus. Did I say it? Don't know, to be honest. You don't know. Anyway, that was from June 1942 to February 1943. The failed conquest had depleted German resources and its military-industrial complex was unprepared to defend the Greater Ger Germanic Reich against the Red Army's westward counterattack. By early 1943, the German government began recalling from a from combat a number of scientists, engineers and technicians. They returned to work in research and development to bolster German defence for a protracted, protracted war with the USSR. The recall from frontline combat included 4,000 rocketeers returned to Enemund in the northeast coastal Germany. Um, the Nazi government's recall of their now useful intellectuals for scientific work first required identifying and locating the scientists, engineers and technicians, then ascertaining their political and ideological reliability. Werner Ostenberg, the engineer scientist head heading the Defence Research Association, I am not going to attempt to say that name, it is about 25 characters long, <laughs> recorded the names of the politically cleared men to the Ossenberg list, thus restraining them to scientific work. In March 1945, at Bonn University, a Polish lab laboratory technician found pieces of the Ossenberg list stuffed in a toilet. The list subsequently reached MI6, who transmitted it to the US intelligence. Then US Army Major Robert B. Staver, chief of the Jet Chief of the Jet Propulsion Section of the Research and Intelligence Propulsion. Branch. That's what it says. Can you have? Can you read? What is, What does it say? Propulsion. Is that what you say? Okay. Well, what, let what's me SI say? It's shh. I don't know. English is such a hard language. I know it's my only language, but sometimes it's just said differently. Propulsion. Anyway. <laughs> um, of the Research and Intelligence Branch of the U Branch of the U.S. Army. Ordnance Corps used the Ossenberg list to compile his list of German scientists to be captured and interrogated. Um, Werner von Braun, Germany's premier rocket scientist, headed Major Starver's list. So, back to Operation Paperclip. The JIOA's goal was to harness German intellectual resources to help develop America's arsenal of rockets and other biological and chemical weapons, and to ensure such coveted information did not fall into the hands of the Soviet Union. This was because the primary purpose of Operation Paperclip was to have a US military advantage over the Soviet Union in the Cold War and the space race. In a comparable operation, the Soviet Union relocated more than 2,200 German specialists a total of more than 6,000 people, including family members, with Operation 
Osovaikim during one night in October 22nd, 1946. So, Operation Osovaikim, if I am saying that correct, um, was the Soviet Union's version of Operation Paperclip. Yeah. So they were kind of competing with the with America to get German scientists, etc., and to get as much information from them as could. Uh-huh. So not only was America doing it, there were other places in the world that were also doing it. So as much as after World War Two, Germany was probably not very liked, it still wasn't a very nice thing for Germans to go through. So, with Operation Osavayakim, much-related equipment was also moved, the aim being to literally transplant research and production research centres, such as the relocated V2 rocket centre at Mittelwerk Nordhausen from Germany to the Soviet Union, and collect as much material as possible to test center, from test centres such as the Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe. That's it. Central Military Aviation Test Center. Um and was taken by the Red Army on the second of May nineteen forty-five. The codename Osovaikim was an acronym of a Soviet paramilitary organization later renamed DOSAAF, which was mistakenly first introduced by a Western German radio station and adapted by the Central Intelligence Group, a predecessor of the CIA. Um, a major consideration of the Soviet Union decision to undertake the operation was fear of the German economy and technological potential reacclimatizing amidst the cooperation of Soviet and German technical experiments after the war and the simultaneous desire to cultivate his te- this technology potential for the Soviet Union's benefit, especially as it concerned the rocket programs that they were doing at the time. Um, in particular, A.G. Merkin of the Soviet Artillery Decorative wrote a letter to the head of NKWD or MVD operations in Germany complaining about the prominence of German scientists in important state-secure work. Another possible reason for the operation was the Soviet fear of being condemned for non-compliance with Allied Control Council agreements on liquidation of German military installations. New agreements were expected on full-power inspections of remaining German war potential, which the Soviets supported, being concerned about developments in the Western zones. That was Operation Osovaikim, so that was what the Soviets were doing. And then for Operation Paperclip, which are on, on about today with the Americans. Um, it started in February 1945 when Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force set up T-Force or Special Section Subdivision, which grew to over 2,000 personnel by June. T-Force examined 5,000 German targets with a high priority on synthetic rubber and oil catalysts new designs in armoured equipment, the V-2 rocket weapons, jet and rocket propelled aircraft, naval equipment, field radios, secret writing chemicals, aeromedicine research gliders, and scientific and industrial personalities. 
When large numbers of German scientists began to be discovered in late April, Special Section Subdivision set up the Enemy Personnel Exploitation Section to manage and interrogate them. Enemy Personnel Exploitation Section established a detention centre, which was called Dustbin, um, first in Paris and later in Kranzberg Castle outside Frankfurt. In Operation Overcast, which is what Operation Paperclip was originally called, um, Major Starver's original intent was only to interview the scientists, but what he learned changed the operation's purpose. So on May the 22nd, 1945, he transmitted to the US Pentagon headquarters to Colonel Joel Holmes a telegram urging the evacuation of German scientists and their families as most important of the Pacific War effort. So basically, Major Starver sent a telegram to the Pentagon asking to basically evacuate the German scientists and their families. In uh, yeah. oh, I'm going to say that's just listen to Joe Rogan uh, yes. podcast where he talked about it. And um, he said they took, them, took a load over to Argentina. They've got their own village. Yes. Yes, they did. I think I put about that in here as well. I think it's a little bit further down. Because um, I think I go on about the family as well. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's so much to the Well, It was such a complicated thing. And they were basically just taking advantage. Not that they lost the ball, but everywhere. Yeah. Um, so the US Joint Chief of Staff established the first secret recruitment program called Operation Overcast. And this was created on July the 20th. As a quote, it was initially to assist in shortening the Japanese war and to aid our post-military war research. The term overcast was the first name given by German scientists' family members for the housing camp that they were held in Boravia. In late summer 1945, the JCS established the JIOA, subcommittee of the Joint Intelligence Community, to directly oversee Operation Overcast and later Operation Paperclip. The JIOA representatives included in the Army's Director of Intelligence the Chief of Naval Intelligence and the Assistant Chief of the Air Staff 2, the Air Force Intelligence and a representative from the State Department. In November 1945, Operation Overcast was renamed Operation Paperclift by Ordnance Corps officers. So Operation Overcast was then called Operation Paperclip because the officers would attach a paperclip to the folder of those rocket experts who they wish to employ in America. So it's a very simple name, actually. Yeah. Well, because they put a paper folders. Anyway, despite these attempts at secrecy, later that year, the press interviewed several of the scientists, which is really interesting how they got to interview them. And although he officially sanctioned the operation, President Truman forbade the agency from recruiting any Nazi members or active Nazis. Nevertheless, yeah, nevertheless, officials with the JIOA and the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA, 
bypass this directive by eliminating or whitewashing incriminating evidence of possible war crimes from the scientists' records, believing their intelligence to be crucial to the country's post-war efforts. In a secret directive circulated on the 3rd of September 1946, President Truman officially approved Operation Paperclip and expanded it to include 1,000 German scientists under temporary limited military custody. So, now I'm going to go on about how they captured and detained them. What, so they took them not by, like, their free will? Oh, no. All right, fair enough. Yeah, no, it, like, around the world, they weren't taken by free will. They were just taken. But at this point, obviously, they'd lost right. the war, so... I thought they'd get an option. No, I, d I don't think they did. At this point, because they had lost the war... Um, yeah, they just like the world thought they could do whatever they want, and obviously they're trying to exploit what they came up with. So yeah, um, mm. early on, the United States created the Combined Intelligence Objectives Subcommittee. This provided the information on targets for the T-forces that went in and targeted scientific, military and industrial installations and their employees for their know-how. Initial priorities were advanced technology such as infrared that could be used in the war against Japan and finding out what technology had been passed on to Japan and finally to halt the research. So a project to halt the research was codenamed Project Safe Haven and it was not initially targeted against the Soviet Union. Rather, the concern was that German scientists might emigrate and continue their research in companies such as Spain, countries, sorry, not companies, such as Spain, Argentina, or Egypt, all of which had sympathised with Nazi Germany. So in order to avoid the complications involved with the emigration of German scientists, the CIOS was responsible for scouting and kidnapping high-profile individuals the deprivation of technology advance in nations outside of France. Yeah. So yeah, they kidnapped them and yeah. because they got scared that they would emigrate to other countries and they would use that information for their own benefit, which is completely understandable. Right. But it was basically to get an advantage. Yeah. So yeah. And on a little side note. Safe Haven was a project within Project Eclipse. Eclipse was created in 2004 and was an unimplemented air disarmament wing plan for post-war operations in Europe for destroying V-1 and V-2 missiles. Safe Haven was meant to prevent the escape of Nazi scientists from Allied-occupied Germany. And much of the US effort was focused on Saxony and the Jin... Thuringia. Can't say I've ever heard of that place. Yeah. T-H-U-R-I-N-G-I-A. Thuringia, I think. Which by July the 1st, 1945, would become part of the Soviet occupation zone. Many German research facilities and personnel had been evacuated to these states, particularly from the Berlin area. Fearing that the Soviet takeover would limit US ability to exploit German scientific and technical expertise, and not wanting the Soviet Union to benefit from said expertise, the United States investigated evacuation operations 
or scientific personnel from Sax Saxony and Thuringia issuing orders such as. So the US issued an order and to quote it, order basically said, on orders of military government, you are to report with your family and baggage as much as you can carry tomorrow noon at 1300 hours on Friday the 22nd of five at the town square in Bitterfeld. There is no need to bring winter clothing. Easily carried possessions such as family documents, jewellery and the like should be taken along. You will be transported by motor vehicle to the nearest railway station. From there you will travel on to the west. Please tell the bearer of this letter how large your family is. Oh, so they let them take the families? Yes, oh, yes. That's all right then. They were allowed to take the families and they were allowed to take family documents, jewellery and their possessions. Right. But they were basically kidnapped. It was kind of similar, but not as... Their fate wasn't as bad to what they did to the Jews. Yeah. Very similar thing. Like, you need to pack your possessions, you go into a railway station, you will to a place you don't know. Yeah. Please tell everyone how large your family is. So, a little bit of karma, but not the same type of karma. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, by 1947, this evacuation operation had netted an estimated 1,800 technicians and scientists along with 3,700 family members. Those with special skills or knowledge were taken to, de to detention and in interrogation centres, such as Adlerhorst, Germany, or one codenamed Dustbin, to be held and interrogated in some cases for months. So... Yeah, brutal. Yeah, they were interrogated quite badly. Well, they deserved it. Um, and a few of the scientists were gathered as part of Operation Overcast, but most were transported to villages in the countryside where there were neither research facilities nor work. Where there were neither research facilities nor work. They were provided stipends and forced to report twice weekly to police headquarters to prevent them from leaving. The Joint Chief of Staff directive on research and teaching stated that technicians and scientists would be released and i quote only after all interested agencies were satisfied satisfied sorry that all desired intelligence information had been obtained from them so on november the 5th 1947 the office of military Go government in the united states which omgus as they abbreviate to um, which had jurisdiction over the western part of occupied Germany, held a conference to consider the status of evacuees. The monetary claims that the evacuees had filed against the United States and the possible violation by the US of laws of war of rules of land, we land welfare. Yeah, of land welfare, warfare, sorry. <laughs> oh my god, that was so bad. <laughs> Honestly, I'm like trying to read it out and then my brain, you know when your brain does that thing where you don't need all the letters of a word and then you yeah, just say it. Just say it and then it, you read it again and it's actually not right. And then I was like, oh my God, completely not right. <laughs> Honestly, what am I like? Um, 
So yeah, the Ongus Director of Intelligence, R.L. Walsh, initiated a program to resettle the evacuees in the Third World, which the Germans referred to as General Walsh's Erwald Program, the Jungle Program, as it's. Yeah. However, this program never matured. So in 1948, the evacuees received settlements of 69.5 million Reichmarks from the US, a settlement that soon became severely devalued during the currency reform that introduced the Dutch mark. Is that how you pronounce it? The Dutch mark, the official currency of Western Germany. I feel like I've not said that right. It'd be the. Is it got a DE? Is it like Deutschmark then? Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, Deutschmark. So, John Gil. Go- <laughs> Honestly. John Gimbal concludes that the United States held some of Germany's best minds for three years, therefore depriving the German recovery of them. Yeah. So next, I'm going to talk about academic fencing. Oh wow, well, yeah. So they where they like to um, slash each other's faces. To... Yeah, which is a really weird thing because we were which watching. It... Yeah, because they're not actually like fencing. No, it's not fencing. They base the real swords, and they wore these yeah. weird goggle things. They didn't get poked in eyes. Yeah, it was. I, they look quite creepy though. I can't remember. I, I know. We've seen the photos, but they look like something. I know it might be something from a movie, and it looks really creepy. Well, they look like they've got. Well, it's like goggles, but then they've got this metal thing over the nose. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, but Annie Jacobson, she spoke about this. Um, yeah. and basically, it's called academic fencing. And is a traditional kind of fencing practiced by some student corporations in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Latvia, Estonia, and to a minor extent in Belgium, Lithuania, and Poland. However, in Switzerland, it is nowadays frowned upon to carry out this tradition, or it is considered unnecessary violence, which it actually is. Yeah, it really is. Because why would you willingly get into a fencing match? You wouldn't. That you're just going to cut someone's face up with. it, Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a traditional and strictly regulated fight between two male members of different fraternities with sharp weapons. Um, and it was created during the 16th century. Oh, yeah. Sword fighting were pretty yeah. normal then. Yeah, and there had to be a specified distance between both of the fences oh. as well. So in modern day academic fencing, it there is neither a jewel nor a sport. It is a traditional way of training and educating character and personality. Thus, is a jeweling bout, and there is neither a winner nor a loser, which I really don't see the point in. No, really make much sense. Because it's even pointless, like... When you're like slashing someone in the face, I feel like it'd be semi-justified if you won or you lost. Yeah. But because there isn't, what's the point? No. I'd just be like, no, thank you. Like my face how it is. I don't want scars all over it. 
So in contrast to sports fencing, the participants stand their ground at a fixed distance. At the beginning of the tradition, jewellers wore only their normal clothing, as jewels sometimes would arise spontaneously, which sounds weird, because that's just not part of our life right now. No. Just imagine being in the street and then you're like, I'm going to jewel you now, and they just whip out a sword. I mean, avoid people with swords, wouldn't they? God, do you know it's just so fascinating, like, how life used to be, that it would just arise spontaneously? Mm. And you would be like, there you go. Let's have a jewel. I'd be like, no. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they would wear normal clothing. Or they would wear light cloth armour on the arm, toes, torso and throat. But in recent years, fences are protected by mail or padding for the body, fencing arm and fencing hand, which is called a gauntlet, and the throat. Yeah, Compl- it's, like, it's like chain mail. Yeah. It can't basically. be penetrated by the. Yeah. Because they have tips on them. Yeah, because. Well, they're not I... really swords anymore. No, they're not. No, it's, this is. It's not fencing it. This is like the actual. Oh, building. right. It's still the same stuff. Yeah, 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 basically. Right. Yeah, so they didn't have tips on them, but. Also, chainmail's always confused me. When I used to look at it, you know, in like TV programs quite a while ago. And I used to think, oh my god, it's so easy to get stabbed through that. Like, me just being thick. No, the, the holes aren't, like, obviously a massive sword. Yeah. It's got a tip. And the tip's probably, like, three inch wide. Yeah, see, I so always... So it can't get through the holes of chainmail. Chainmail, yeah. with it not being solid metal, a bit lighter than... Yeah. A night suit. Because I, I always thought, I was like, oh, that's so stupid. Like, you can you can get a sword through that. Like, you could poke someone and injure them. And then, like, I watched a video, and then I was like, you actually can't. I was like, my life's been a lie. Yeah, it's nearly impossible. Yeah, I know. Me once again being stupid. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, their outfits in the more modern... It depends him. ...were completed by steel goggles with a nose guard, which we were on about a minute ago. Yeah. As well. That look really fucking creepy, but I will post a photo of it on our Instagram page. <laughs> and in Austria and Switzerland, a nose guard is uncommon. So the opponents fence at arm's length and stand more or less in one place while attempting to hit the unprotected areas of their opponent's face and head. Flinching or dodging is not allowed, and the goal being less to avoid injury than to endure it. So two f- physicians are present, one for each opponent, to attend to injuries and to stop the fight if necessary. <laughs> Which, at least they have a physician there. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. I mean, well, no, you can just die on the floor. Yeah. Ugh. Can't imagine. No, I wouldn't. But imagine if that happened, like, nowadays. Like, obviously, I know, like, fencing's a sport, like, completely different, but imagine if you were just in the street and to solve an argument. I find even fighting someone in the street stupid, let alone, like, fucking fencing them and whipping a sword out. <laughs> It'd just be weird, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, the scars resulting from a hit is called a smite. 
and was seen as a badge of honour, especially in the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th. Nowadays, the presence of scars usually indicates a mistake and therefore is no longer considered dignified. So today, it's not easy for an outsider to identify fencing scars due to better medical Also, the number of mandatory fencing was reduced in the second half of the 20th century. Most fencing scars are located on the left temple of the forehead and scars on the cheek and chin are rather uncommon and sometimes are due to accidents in today's world. Yeah, obviously you've got all, all those SS soldiers Yeah, that have all got the fencing scars. Yes. Down the right side of the face. Yeah, basically. Well, left. Yeah. 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 Um, and during the times of the Third Reich, the National Socialist leadership chose to forbid academic fencing. They had recognised that fencing was still an integral part of the internal strength of the last still existing independent fraternities during the later 1930s. And as Nazi pressure increased and fraternities were forced to officially suspend their activities, so-called comradeships were founded. These provided means for practising and organising the fencing among former fraternities while remaining undetected to the Nazi secret police. One such example was the SC Comradeship, they initiated, which was initiated by fraternities in Germany. There, the fencing duels continued and even intensified from 1941 onwards, with over 100 of such duels happening during World War II alone. And following the war, most of the formerly suspended fraternities were reactivated and resumed the traditions of academic fencing. If they had not continued throughout the time of the Nazi occupation, they continued throughout Operation Paperclip, as was discussed. Yeah. As well. By Annie Jacobson. Yeah. There we are. So, I'm going to get on to the rocket scientists. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, now, the rocket scientists I have by name. And we all know how this is going to go. So please yeah. bear with, because there's quite a few of them. Yeah, all these Germans. <laughs> so in May 1945, the US Navy received in custody... I can't even say Navy. I swear to God. Navy. I need help. <laughs> In 1945, in May, the US Navy received in custody Herbert A. Wagner, the inventor of the HS-293 missile, and for two years he first worked at the Special Devices Centre at Castle Gold and the Hempstead House, Long Island, New York. In 1947, he moved to the Naval Air Station Point. In August 1945, Colonel Holger Toftoy, Head of the Rocket Branch of the Research and Development Division of the U.S. Army's Ordnance Corps offered initial one-year contracts to rocket scientists. 127 of them accepted. So, in terms of the rocket scientists during Operation Paperclip, they actually consented and were contracted to be a rocket scientist for the U.S. Yeah. So yes, 127 of them accepted one-year contracts. 
yeah. the, they were willingly recruited compared to the yeah, other obviously the ones that got kidnapped. Yeah, which was quite nice that they were willingly recruited. Mm. Um, so it, therefore, in September 1945, the first group of seven rocket scientists, aerospace engineers, arrived at Fort Strong, located on Long Island in Boston Hall. Boston Harbour. <sighs> now I've got to say these names. Werner von Braun, Eric W. Newbert, Theodore A. Popple, William August Schulz, Eberhard Rees, Willem Junger, and Walter Schwedensky. Can we just have a moment of silence for nearly getting through that? Nearly. Yeah. Keyword oh, oh, nearly. Yeah. Only nearly. <laughs> I didn't do that bad. Um, so, yeah, the rocket scientist groups arrived in the United States for duty at Fort Bliss, Texas, and at White Sands Proving Grounds in New Mexico as War Department special employees. In 1946, the United States state's bureau of mines employed seven german synthetic fuel scientists at fisher Tropsch chemical land in louisiana missouri on the 1st of june 1945 the chief of ordinance of the united states army designated redstone arsenal in huntsville alabama as the ordinance rocket center its facility for rocket research and development then on April 1st, 1950, the Fort Bliss missile development operation, including Von Braun and his team of over 130 paperclip members, was transferred to Redstone Arsenal. And in early 1950, legal US residency for some of Project Paperclip specialists was affected through the US consulate in, in Mexico. <laughs> Thus, <laughs> German scientists legally entered the US, the United States from Latin America. Right. So they were given re residency, which yeah. I think they should. We've well, yeah, they, done a lot for the US. There. Yeah. I and, mean, they killed millions of Jews, but yeah. Yeah, and like, they've at least contributed to something within the US. Unwillingly. So. Um, yeah, but just a nice gesture isn't it <laughs> after being kidnapped <laughs> if it's where mads gets cancelled for saying that the german scientists from the fucking Nazis were good people no i meant the americans oh right yeah they're offering them residency german scientists can out. well now i'm saying <laughs> they don't deserve it yeah no i completely understand um so, between 1945 and 1952, the United States Air Force sponsored the largest number of paperclip scientists, importing 260 men, of whom 36 returned to Germany, and one re-emigrated to Argentina. 86 aeronautical engineers were transferred to Wright Field, Ohio, where the United States had Luft Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe. That's it. Aircraft and equipment captured under Operation Lusty. So it was Luft. Luftwaffe. Secret technology. <laughs> so in 
So the United States Army Signal Corps employed 24 specialists, including physicists, physical chemists, geophysicists, an optician, and engineers. In 1959, in 1959, 94 Operation Paperclip men went to the United States and overall, through its operations to 1990, Operation Paperclip was valued at $10 billion in patents and industrial proceeds. I'm going to go into the controversy and investigations. So, before his official approval of the program, President Truman, for 16 months, was indecisive on the program. Years later, in 1963, Truman recalled that he was not in the least reluctant to approve Operation Paperclip. That was because of relations with the Soviet Union, and he quoted that this had to be done and was done. So several of the paperclip scientists were later investigated because of their links to the Nazi party during the war. Only one paperclip scientist, George Rickey, was formally tried for any, for any crime, and no paperclip scientist was found guilty of any crime in America or Germany. Ricky was returned to Germany in 1947 to stand at the Dora trial where he was acquitted. And in 1951, weeks after his US arrival, Walter Scribber was linked to the Boston Globe, the human experiments conducted by Kurt Blome, um, and he emigrated to Argentina with the aid of the US military. In 1984, sorry, Arthur Rudolph, under perceived threat of prosecution relating to his connection as operations director of the V-2 missile production to the use of forced labour, um, renounced his US citizenship and moved to West Germany, which granted him citizenship. For 50 years, from 1963 to 2013, the Strugold Award, named after Roberta Strugold, the father of space medicine, for his central role in developing innovations like the spacesuit and space life support systems, was the most prestigious award from the Space Medicine Association, a member organisation of Aerospace Medical Association. On the 1st of October 2013, in the aftermath of a Wall Street Journal article published on the 1st of December 2012, which highlighted his connection to human experiments during World War II, the Space Medicine Association's Executive Committee announced that the Space Medicine Association Strugold Award had been retired. Now, there was many awards and accomplishments that the scientists got, so I'll go through them now. So, NASA, the NASA Distinguished Service Medal is the highest award um, which may be bestowed by NASA. After more than two decades of service and leadership in NASA, four Operation Paperclip members were awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal in 1969. They were Kurt, Ebbard, Arthur and Werner von Braun. Um, Ernest was awarded the medal as well, but in 1973. The Department of Defense Distinguished Civilian Service Award is the highest civilian award given by the United States Department of Defense. And after two decades of service, Operation Paperclip member Siegfried was awarded the Department of Defense Distinguished Civilian Service Award in 1966. The Goddard Astronautics Award is the highest honor bestowed 
for notable achievements in the field of astronautics by the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics for their service three opera for their service three operation paperclip members were awarded the goddard aeronautics award which were werner von braun hans von ahain and Kraft arnold um the u.s space and rocket center in huntsville alabama owns and operates the u.s space camp several operation paperclip members are members of the space camp hall of fame which began in 2007 werner is one of them George is one of them and Oscar is one of them. And the New Mexico Museum of Space History includes the International Space Hall of Fame. Two Operation Paperclip members are members of the International Space Hall of Fame, which is Werner and Ernst. Um, Hubertus was inducted in 1978, but he was removed as a member in 2006. Other closely related members include a German american science writer and a german scientist who advised von braun's rocket team in the u.s from 1955 to 1958 and two lunar craters are named after paperclip scientists debus named after kurt debus and the first director of nasa's kennedy space center and von braun and von braun was chief architect of the Saturn V launch vehicle, which enabled human missions to the moon, and Adolf was responsible for the swept wing, which improved aircraft performance at high speeds. Yeah. That is all my research for today. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I find it really interesting how um, some of these scientists advanced just like missions to the moon stuff with like space and everything and then also stuff to do with aircrafts yeah it's it's just really interesting and i just wonder where we would have been without them oh yeah so world war Two. yeah without it, we wouldn't have anything yeah it yeah and also because they are german scientists they were able to create more and a bit more freely because the US has a lot more income that they will put into stuff like this. Yeah. Um so yeah, so they were able basically able to um advance things a lot quicker and I wonder how long it would have probably taken the US to go to the moon if it was. Yeah. So yeah, um, that's all my research. I hope I did it justice. Um, we second time. Yeah, we've had to record this last bit again. Just <laughs> kind of forgot to press record, but it's fine. Um, so next week, do you want to tell everyone what we're doing? Uh, we will be doing Marilyn. Yes. Um. Obviously, there has been in recent months a lot of abuse allegations made against him. Now, I've actually already done the research for this episode because I kind of deep dived into it and just kept going. Um, but I'll get into all the allegations that he has against him, but then also his past life as well and how, even though these allegations were also in his past life, how it has affected how he's grown up and yeah. all of this. 
Um, but then that will lead on to, is it Charles Manson and his family? Yeah, Charles Manson and the Manson family. Yeah, we're wanting to do that as well. Um, and then that will lead on to where they decided, the IA decided to test uh, unwilling people versus with LSD. Yes. So we have basically planned the next six episodes. We just need to get the right order for them and then go from there. But we spent the night last night just brainstorming ideas of what we want to do and go from there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to say bye to the people? I'll let you say bye to the people. You've been listening to Mysteries, Conspiracies and Random Shit with Mads and Cam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor and Google Podcasts and also many other uh, podcast streaming sites as well um, where you can check out more episodes that we have recorded. Um, we upload a new podcast every Wednesday so make sure to subscribe for more episodes so you get notified when we next upload and never miss an episode as your support really means a lot to us. We also are wanting to do this as a regular thing in the near future, but we have created a YouTube channel so we can record our podcasts and upload them on there as well, in case you want to watch instead yeah. of listen. Um, well, I, both. Yeah, basically you can do either. Also, if you want to see any digital files that we use in our episodes, you can follow us on Instagram at Mysteries Conspiracies. So you can check those out, and if you have any suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover, feel free to send us a message. All our other links will be in the description for the episodes if you want to check us out anywhere else and all our other links for all our social medias. But once again, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.